Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined today by the lovely Ellison Weist. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, and and I'm recovering from a fever. That's what I hear. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's my body's go-to, as you know, from having known me all these years. That's right. And uh, yeah, so I had a sore throat last week and a little bit of a stuffy nose and then woke up on Sunday morning, supposed to run probably 10 miles with Molly. Yikes. And uh, our, the night before we thought, oh, well, we'll just have to play it by ear, depending on the rain. And it was like, oh, no. I I can't go. I have a fever. And I like I felt pretty alert for the half hour that I was kind of dealing with it with her and then like waiting for her to text me back. And then I went back to bed and slept for three hours. Oh, my word. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. So and then took two more naps. Wow. Uh, yeah, so but um, when did it break Sunday night or no, still had a tiny bit on Monday, I'd say Monday midday. And then mm-hmm. um, this morning, we're recording for a Tuesday, um, just for something new and different. And uh, I ran six miles today. So yeah, um, so good yeah, on you. Yeah, yeah, but you may want to NAP this afternoon. Oh, I don't Oh, I don't know if a nap's in my future. But yeah. uh, I like the idea of that. Yeah. 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 Well, I also say it's maintenance and just just to take care of yourself. <laughs> Dr. Ellison is in the house. Put an electronic sign on my on the door, otherwise known as email. And, uh, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So so when I told people on the internet, speaking of that, they um, a couple of people tweeted to me and said how excited they were to hear your most recent book recommendations. So okay. let's get down to this. All right. We'll get right down to it. Um, oh, first, you brought actual books I with you. I always do that I because I, I, uh, A, I don't trust my memory, and B, I just like like the feel of books, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, as we've talked before, I still haven't learned about electronic reading. I mean, I've learned about it, but I still haven't taken to it. Uh-huh. Um, so a couple of days ago, I finished a book by an author that I adore, but he's not very well known. He's a British author named Andrew Miller. Uh-huh. Um, a couple of years ago, his, I believe it was his third novel, which is called Pure, uh-huh. P-U-R-E, uh-huh. Uh, won the cost of best novel. Yeah. Uh, it was actually more like six years ago. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> Time so flies. A couple, it does. It does, especially the older you get. Yeah. Um, and that one, uh, people are going to probably cringe at the description, but it's essentially about uh, a young engineer in uh, 1785 Paris, France, mm-hmm. who is charged with cleaning up uh, the underground cemetery this massive oh. cemetery that was underneath the city of paris is that true like it was it's a really based on uh-huh. on truth uh-huh. um so it's right before the revolution and it sounds like a really creepy subject but <laughs> andrew miller is a Please. phenomenal hold writer it. hold it and um it's one of those books that once you get started you can't put down um and so i was very interested to hear that he had another novel called The Crossing, uh-huh. uh, which just came out. And by the way, both of these novels are published by Europa Editions, which if you're not familiar with them, they're, uh, they're the same people that put out uh, the Ellen Ferrante books. Um, oh, yeah. also kind of, they kind of hit their stride with The Elegance of the Hedgehog. Oh, that's, that's so funny. It has that feel to it. It does. And it does. Um, the books themselves have a really nice feel. They are paperback, right? With French flaps. Oh, oh uh-huh. French Mais flaps, oui. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just they have a very substantial, yes, nice the- feel. And if you've got several of them lined up in a bookcase. Oh, they look good. <clears throat> yeah, because oh, yeah, they have yeah. solid color, very pretty um, spines. Yes. And um, and the paper itself, the cover feels really nice. Substantial. Nice smooth. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Huh. So, um, and they're not as expensive as a hardcover. Uh, no, they're they usually run about seventeen or eighteen dollars. Oh, okay. um, so you know they're getting there, but mm-hmm. you know also that's 
about ten dollars less these days than oh, easily. Most hard hardbacks. But mm-hmm. so a shout out to Europa Editions because they really do a great job. Um, and are they all European, written by European authors? Is, to the it best of Europa. my knowledge, yes, mm-hmm. but don't quote me on that. Um, to the best of my knowledge, they are. Okay. They are. But this latest book, The Crossing, is definitely different. It's it's uh, more modern times, uh, probably around the turn of this century, and uh, features a young couple who fall in love over um, their mutual love of sailing oh. and uh, essentially become a couple. She is very a very different person. She's very pragmatic, uh, almost to the point of appearing cold. Mm. Where he comes from a wealthy uh, upper upper class British family, and they start a life together. And midway through the book, uh, there's a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And the, one of the things about Andrew Miller is a tragedy uh, that he he doesn't. He doesn't focus on it so much as he lets it happen and then just sort of moves things from there. I'm not doing a good job of describing how he handles this tragedy, which is a tragedy that would bring most of us to our knees. And yet the way he deals with it is is very unique. So mm-hmm. I, I cannot say enough about his writing. Yeah, well, you make yeah. it sound very intriguing. Yeah, it is. Now, I, I will say that towards the end, it, it, to me at least, it began to bog down a little bit, but not enough to quit reading. Okay. Yeah. So when you're done with both those books. I'm done with those both those books, and okay. I'm done with, and I have to tout this writer, Tim Getro, who, um, and I hope I'm pronouncing yeah, his last name. Yeah, which has a lot of letters name. in it. Yes, he's a, a Louisiana boy. But he writes novels and short stories, and his latest book is a collection of short stories, some of which have been published before, but it's called Signals. Oh, uh-huh. And I have never laughed out loud as much with short stories oh. as I have with him. An example, one of my favorite short stories has the title Welding with Children. <laughs> <laughs> and he is phenomenal. He has a great ear for the folks down in, in Louisiana and can take a very simple, uh, either a very mundane uh, job, such as heating repairman, uh-huh. and spin it. Oh. Um, his his stories, you know, you can read this in one couple, you know, couple of settings, or you can just dip into it. Uh-huh. But these stories, I, I can't say enough about him. Oh, uh, huh. Fantastic. Huh. And lastly, okay. uh, yesterday I started a book that I really think is going to appeal to readers who enjoyed uh, Major Pedigree's Last Stand or um, Emily Alone uh, yeah. by Stuart O'Nan. None of these um, are ringing any bells. Yeah, me. I think some of our listeners will, will remember Major Pedigree's Last Stand, but it's called Lillian Boxfish Takes a Walk, and it's by Kathleen Rooney. And essentially, it's an 84-year-old woman who lives in Manhattan, uh, decides to take a walk one night uh, before going to dinner, and she essentially looks back on her life where she was a very successful copy editor oh. uh, starting off at Macy's. And the the language, uh, the description of Lillian, uh, right off the bat, you, you like her, you want to uh-huh. hear more about her, you... You know, you want to learn more about her life, beginning and ending. And um, like I say, I'm only about 45, 50 pages in, but I think this one's going to be a winner. 
Oh, so and it it sort of does it take you back to the time when she was younger? Or, yes. Uh huh. Yes, and it 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 looks like it builds from there. Um, but I just I, already I'm in love with Lillian. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So what about you? So I am going the nonfiction route currently. Uh, pulled. A, I decided to uh, take a book off my bookshelf that's been sitting there staring at me for a while. And I took down 1861 yes. by Adam Goodhart. Right. And so it is um, a gripping account of how the Civil War started. And so ever since I saw the movie Cold Mountain, I have been, well, I mean, my dad's Southern, so um, I, I guess I um, inherently have an interest in the Civil War. Um, and so, and, and or the war of aggression, yeah. as we call it. <laughs> um, so he split his time between Chicago and Tennessee. So dad, dad, you know, straddled both sides of the war. So, um, but being a history buff. So, um, but particularly when I saw Cold Mountain, I just want to learn more about what life was like then and what what life was like for um, not the soldiers so much as the families left behind. And so this doesn't quite do that because it's before the start of the war, but hearing about what life was like for people then and what they were concerned with and... Um, it's um it's very readable it's um i mean it's a lot of words on the page um right <laughs> and, uh, and so and and it and it's just a very dense book but i mean i i can definitely make it through 20 pages or so without um getting a little bit sleepy so mm-hmm. i think that's a good start so and uh i actually i don't spend much time on facebook socially but a family friend who i admire greatly he was saying he just finished it so i was like okay if Tom can read it, then, you know, I think I should take a stab at it. So and it's I've on my to... bookshelf, and I haven't read it yet. Right. So. Yeah, yeah, there see, we go. Okay, see, we're, see? we're starting something <laughs> right, here. Get right. the ball rolling. <laughs> so um, in part because I've been waiting for some books to come in at Multnomah County Library for me, and it turns out that a lot of the books I want are on, are on order still. Yes. So um, two that I'm waiting for are All Are Wrong Today's by um, Alan Mustay. I might hmm. be saying that. I'm surprised you don't know about it. They've talked yeah. about NPR. It's a debut novel, and it's um, uh, they're comparing it to uh, Ready Player One. Okay. So it's it's about time travel, but kind of like he's from our our current, but because he like somehow travels back in time, and then he messes things up, and he comes back to. Like he's in 2017, he somehow goes back and changes the course of history or future, and and then ends up in our true today. And he's like, no, 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 it wasn't supposed to be like this. They were supposed to be flying cars, and you know. Oh. Um, so it's. A, I think it sounds a little bit like a little, you know, head spinner. But um, I mean, it's supposedly very well crafted and um, imaginative. And um, so yeah, I heard about that one on NPR, and then. I think I might have heard about this other one, The Wanderers by Meg Howery. Yes. And that's an yes. inventive novel about three astronauts training for their first ever mission to Mars. Right. And she's an excellent novelist. I oh, read good. Uh, her first one, which was about uh, ballerina dancers, and I am blanking on the name of oh, that, okay. but it's excellent. Oh, uh, good. Oh, good to know. It's excellent. And Elizabeth Strout has a new one coming out in April. Oh, right. R- right. Remind a me. A Little Trouble. 
the books that I know the titles of most readily are My Name is Lucy Barton and Olive Kitteridge. Right. Olive Kitteridge is a collection of short stories. And a lot of people are familiar with it because of the HBO series. Right. Right, right. That's that's what we're talking about. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, and then the one final book that I'm going to be reading soon, or rereading, I should say, is The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. Oh, yes. And that was my choice for this year for book group. Good. And um, so I have to say, I hated the movie. I hated the movie The Age of Innocence, despite being a lifelong Daniel Day-Lewis fan. Like, I, I'm a card-carrying member of his fan club, I, I'd i like to say, um, if there is such a thing. Uh, we can all hope. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's <laughs> one now um and uh so i did not enjoy the movie at all but then i adore adore edith wharton i want to make it out to her house in western mass yes. sometime yes and um i know i've been near it but i've never made it to it and um so finally i'm like okay fine i'll read the age of innocence and i adored it yeah oh yeah just loved it yeah another case where you really shouldn't let the movie define the book if you right. haven't read the book right yeah oh. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, and I'm looking forward to that. And it's also not a very long novel. No, a couple of hers early. You know, think about how short Ethan Frome is. Right. I mean, but that's that's considered a novella, right? Well, that's yeah. True. So, I mean, that's Summer true. is a very short novel. That's true. Um, I mean, Custom of the Country gets a little bit longer. The Buccaneers, which I've never made it through, is, is longer. Long. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Good. Um, Good. Yeah, so I'm excited. Yeah, and I'll be posting book group. Yeah, it'll be fun to hear what they think. Yes, yes, exactly. So, um, well, good. Well, I'm glad you had some some new suggestions that you'd actually read since I've been a little slacking in the reading category lately. (laughs) Um, So, um, anyway, so... Let's move on to this week's episode, which unintentionally, this week's episode is like a companion piece to last week's show, which was about overcoming the creakiness that comes with growing older. Today, we're talking about menopause. All right, guys who listen to the podcast, maybe now is where you turn it off and switch to, you know, something else. But um, Your time will come. <laughs> right, if you have a mother runner in, our, in your life. Um, so and we'll also be uh, touching on perimenopause. And because like it or not, almost everyone listening to this pod is either there or headed toward the change. This show takes a look at menopause and running in particular. Our guest is Dr. Susan Reed, Chief of Service for Obstetrics and Gynecology at Harborview Medical Center and a University of Washington professor of obstetrics and gynecology with an adjunct appointment in epidemiology. As program director for the UW Women's Reproductive Health Research Center, Dr. Reed is an expert in midlife women's health, also known as menopause. Um, Last but not least, Dr. Reed is a mother runner slash triathlete. Dr. Reed will join the conversation right after this quick break. Welcome, Susan. Thank you for making time in your busy schedule to join us and talk about menopause. I'm happy to do so. Well, first, let's talk about your athletic life uh, before diving into the main event. Um, In an email, you told Sarah you used to run longer distances, but these days uh, shorter triathlons are your thing. So as a 63-year-old mother... Tell us how your athletic pursuits have evolved over the years. <laughs> well, I think for all uh, mothers and athletes, you're, uh, what you're doing uh, has to fit in with what's happening with your family as far as time and um, location. So um, I have dealt with that by trying to... Uh, love lots of things and um, running is one of those 
most immediate ways of uh, feeling healthy and getting your endorphins going uh, wherever you are. So it's always been part of, I would say, my armamentarium. But I also really love biking. I was a competitive skier, competitive volleyball, um, swimming, tennis. Uh, so I I love lots of things. And triathlons have evolved because of love for biking, um, having been a swimmer before and always uh, loving running. So nice. it's it happened later. I turned 50 and decided to start doing triathlons. Good, good decision. Uh, so Allison, <laughs> Allison and I had very different experiences going through the change. I went into it a little, yeah. a little on the early side. I was um, around age 44, but I had very few symptoms. And I'm going to mm-hmm. let Allison chime in about her experiences before you answer. But mainly we want to know, is it simply the luck of the draw? Because it doesn't really seem that that it matters how we take care of ourselves leading up to menopause that has any effect on it. So like I said, I'll let Ellison chime in about her experience. Yeah, I went in more, mm-hmm. you know, the normal age. I think I was 54 when I completed, but I, I just was, it was horrible for me, um, especially nighttime uh, disturbances, uh, nighttime sweats, daytime sweats. Uh, it was, it was ongoing. It continued. It seemed like it went on forever. I think I was, probably about five years going through it. Plus I was training. I remember I was training for my first Boston when it hit and um, I couldn't understand why somebody who ate well, never smoked, didn't drink, correct BMI, was having such a hard time. So explain it to us, Lucy. Yeah. So so uh, there, it's a combination of genetic and environmental factors that will impact how each woman experiences menopause. Average age is 51 to 52, and average duration of symptoms that are uh, bothersome and notable are, are is around five years. So um, one of you were on the more classic end, and the other um, certainly within a normal spectrum. Um, I I have a clinic that uh, cares for a number of immigrant uh, women and what we know uh, is that there are definitely racial differences uh, around menopause experience both based on genetics but also environment Um, we care for women that come from the Horn of Africa and came from um, countries of civil war malnutrition and a number of those uh, women came to us and said when they left their country in their um, late 40s, their period stopped and never came again. Or they were in a uh, refugee camp and their period stopped and will never come again. So that's an extreme. So what you're saying about taking good care of yourself, good nutrition, is really important. That if we aren't uh, well nourished, that you are more apt to stop your periods. Uh, completely and go through menopause. <laughs> um, lastly, I would say there's some new information around genetic changes of how we metabolize our hormones, and your hormones uh, do somewhat dictate what your experience will be. It's that imbalance of 
the two female hormones, estrogen and progesterone, that can really uh, wreak havoc uh, on symptoms. Real big swings, high estrogens and really low estrogens, seem to be most problematic. Um, so a long answer to, uh, it, it is a complex question, but I think all a woman can do is um, take good care of herself, eat well, just as uh, you did, and understand that there's a familial or genetic aspect to this that you really can't control. Mm-hmm. So, so what are the signs that menopause might be on the near horizon? Like, is perimenopause, is that really a state? Is it a thing? Is it a myth? <laughs> It's a definite thing, and it, and it is much more acknowledged today than it was in our mother's uh, time. Historically, um, it, that final day of your last menstrual period was felt to be the most important time, and now we recognize that quite often it's a couple of years at least before you have that final menstrual period that you may not feel so well. Your periods can be really heavy. They uh, sometimes are at shorter intervals. Um, and that certainly can be problematic for runners. Mm-hmm. Um, and that um, the symptoms actually bridge that day of your final menstrual period most commonly for the two years before and the two years after if you had to sort of take that on average. That sounds familiar. Symptoms, yeah. Symptoms that you had, the the thing that I see women in my office for most commonly today, it's not so much the hot flashes, even the night sweats, it's the inability to sleep. Uh, Yep, 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 yep. That that really brings women in. Um, A lot of we tolerate a lot of things, and I think athletes uh, are used to driving themselves through pain. They're used to sweating. Um, So, more often than not, we're going to tolerate that better. But uh, as an athlete, being exhausted and not having enough sleep will impact your. your functionality, not only in daily life, but in your competitive life. So um, that is most commonly when I see and treat women today, whereas it really was hot flashes historically that people talked about. Yeah, well, let's let's stay on that and talk about sleep or a lack thereof, because I was fortunate enough to be freelancing from home during most of my menopause years, and they also coincided with training for several marathons, so nap saved my bacon. <laughs> but uh, what advice yeah. can you give sleep-deprived menopausal runners with full-time jobs who don't have that luxury? Um, napping is really important. Our group just did a uh, what's called a randomized controlled trial. So I am um, a principal investigator for um, the only me- National Institutes of Health uh, menopause research network in our oh. country. And we did a study looking at cognitive behavioral therapy and sleep. Um, CBT is used commonly in the um, behavioral world to help Uh, people with mood, um, anxiety, depression, but it's also been shown to be helpful for sleep in non-menopausal women. We did a study looking at specifically women at menopause with um, 
challenges with sleep and did see benefit. So uh, behavioral um, treatments can be helpful. Uh, Describe what some of those. So would mindfulness be one of the things that would fall under CBT or what would be some other examples of CBT? Yeah, mindfulness is a different modality. Mm -hmm. Um, These techniques can be uh, taught usually by a psychologist or a behavioralist. Um, I think we see less of an understanding of how they can be applied to menopause um, because people haven't really looked at that carefully, but I'm hopeful in the next five years we're going to see more of this. We certainly use it in uh, my clinic. Um, All of my patients get referred to our behavioralist uh, who actually happens to be a social worker but is trained in CBT um, and has a good understanding of mindfulness. Yoga we studied. So I I move on to yoga and we actually studied exercise. Mm -hmm. Um, Yoga was found to be helpful as far as Uh, some aspects of sleep, and uh, certainly a quality of life. Uh, We saw improvement. We didn't see decrease in uh, the number or bothersomeness of hot flashes, which we were surprised. Um, Exercise, we studied in essentially exercise-naive women, which does not uh, apply to this audience. And I would encourage all of you, as you look at the data on exercise in menopause, that a lot of it may not apply to you because we really have not studied runners. Um, We have, uh, in our group of essentially non-exercising women, uh, we did not see a decrease in hot flashes uh, or bothersomeness. Um, We saw an improvement in quality of life which makes sense. That's why uh, you and all of your listeners uh, run, Mm -hmm. because we understand this. Um, There is also some data on weight loss uh, and uh, decrease in hot flashes in the Women's Health Initiative, which was a big study um, looking at uh, midlife women's health. It had many different aspects to it. They found that in women who lost over 10 pounds that they tended to have a benefit in their menopausal symptoms uh, over time as compared to women who were overweight and did not lose weight. Hmm. So, uh, again, may not apply to this audience because most uh, runners are of normal BMI to begin with. Mm So not a strategy that's necessarily going to be helpful. Yeah, yeah. Can I just also say that that's kind of sad that there aren't more studies about menopause, given that, you know, the majority of the population in the U.S. is female and, and the population's getting older. So, I mean, like, get on it, NIH. Um. <laughs> yeah, I would say that the Women's Health Initiative was the uh, the largest study ever done in women, Um and was uh, one of the uh, most expensive trials ever performed by NIH. So we did see that change in the 90s, and NIH did answer with a women's health initiative. I think the challenge with that study is helping women interpret those findings. So 
what women heard were was that you aren't supposed to take hormones because it's not good for you. Mm-hmm. And if you step back from that initial message, which was um, from data of women average age 63 when they started their hormones to, yeah, it doesn't really apply to those 50 to 60-year-old women. Uh, That's when we get the symptoms. Yeah. Uh, Are hormones uh, detrimental for us? And the data in that age group from Women's Health Initiative got very little press. But... uh, would suggest that certainly the risks with estrogen alone for women who have had a hysterectomy, age 50 to 60, it is, uh, in fact, beneficial to your health and safe. Mm -hmm. No increased risk for breast cancer. Um, For women of normal BMI, we don't worry about stroke or leg clots. So actually... um, for women that come into my clinic that have difficulty sleeping and behavioral changes don't help, a little bit of estrogen is actually not a bad thing for younger women. Mm-hmm. Never used in older women because of the Women's Health Initiative. But younger women, um, not a bad strategy. All right. Even estrogen, if you... Oh, go ahead. Even, even if you... now, if, what if you have a uterus? You okay. need progesterone. And this is where it gets trickier. What we have done since the Women's Health Initiative is decrease the doses of those hormone therapies uh, that were have been used historically to treat um, symptoms. And we still find benefit with these lower doses. It's similar to what um, certainly this generation saw with the birth control pills. The doses used today are uh, usually about half or even less than half than the doses that were used uh, when the birth control pills first came out. So decreased dose means uh, lower risk with hormones uh, pretty much across the board. So following Women's Health Initiative, we decreased doses by uh, using patches allows you to decrease the dose. Um, and come by decreasing the estrogen dose, you can decrease the progesterone dose, which should decrease risks. So in my practice today, I use almost uh, only what we call transdermal mm-hmm. or uh, patch patches rather than oral. It seems odd because so much in medicine we use uh, pills, but Patches with hormones are important. Hormones taken by your mouth go immediately to your liver where they're metabolized. So you have to give uh, sometimes 20 times the effective dose to get an effect in the body because of the liver uh, metabolism. Mm -hmm. You can bypass that by giving a patch and give a lower dose. Yeah. Wow. So patches are on the on the microgram uh, dosage orders, and um, pills are milligrams typically. So you can really cut your doses. Wow, wow! Um, you, you mentioned birth control pills. We had um, some questions from our Facebook page as well as on Twitter, and yeah. 
Um, this woman, Alyssa, was asking if there's natural ways to even out the cycles as they enter perimenopause. And she said, like, horrible cramps, lots of bleeding and cycles that get closer yeah. together and so further apart. And she said, how about birth control pills? And a couple of women chimed in on the Facebook page saying, oh, yeah, you know, my doctor gave them to me. It seems, you know, kind of funny to be taking them at age, you know, 47, but, uh, you know, that they were they were working for them. So can you talk a little bit about exactly. that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. So there are two things that are commonly used today to help women with heavy, painful periods as they are in what we call the late menopause transition. This is a time uh, when women's periods are starting to become irregular um, and very heavy. Birth control pills, uh, you can take them continuously and not do that placebo week mm -hmm. such that you uh, cut the periods out completely. A lot of my patients say, ooh, that doesn't sound good. That sounds unnatural. Don't I need to have a period? And the answer is no. If you don't build up that lining within the uterus, which is what we shed when we have a period, um, then you don't need to have a period. Taking the birth control pill continuously allows you not to get that build up. And it's fine. It doesn't yeah. hurt anything. Oh yeah, we, we've can, we, we've read the history that it was men who decided that women would need to take that the placebo pills because they thought it was unnatural. Yeah. So so we're getting back <laughs> at them. Yep, we don't need to do that. <laughs> That's right. And we can use lower dose pills. So the as I said before, the birth control pill when it was first uh, developed was in the order of. 100 uh, micrograms of ethanyl estradiol, which is a stronger estrogen than the natural estradiol. It stays around longer. We now have birth control pills that are 10 micrograms or one-tenth wow. of that initial oh birth control dose. There's only one pill that makes that 10 microgram dose, and that's a product called Low Low Estrin. I don't have stock in that company. I don't care about that company. But what I do like about this is, again, that estrogen dose. The birth control pill estrogen dose is going to be always higher than your postmenopausal estrogen doses by an order of magnitude of often, you know, even that low, low estrogen is about fourfold higher um, than a postmenopausal estrogen dose. Huh. So, Lower is better as far as risk, um, but you need a strong progesterone, which is in the birth control pill, to help with the periods. Okay. The okay. other thing that we commonly use is uh, an, a progesterone IUD, oh. and there are many different kinds of those. Um, the most common one is called uh, Marina, and again, I don't have stock in any of these companies. Um, the other forms are Lyletta, uh, Skyla. Um, these can be very helpful to uh, give, give birth control in the late 40s, which is really needed, um, help with heavy periods. Um, they, it, they will not help with hot flashes, whereas a birth control pill would actually help you with hot flashes because it has estrogen. Okay. Well, let's switch it up a bit and talk about running pace. Um, about mm. two years mm -hmm. after I finished menopause, um, I saw a dramatic drop-off in my speed. Um, as in, remember, I ran a sub-two-hour half marathon in May, and you know, four wow. or five months later, I was struggling to do a sub-11-minute training run. Um, is yeah. that typical? 
And if so, what are the physiological reasons behind it? Yeah. So some of this comes with just normal aging and is not necessarily a menopause phenomenon. Our muscles, our bones, our nervous system, our lungs, our heart, it's all aging. Um, However, at menopause, what happens hormonally is we always think of menopause as the time we lose our estrogen. We're also uh, losing testosterone, and testosterone is a really important hormone as far as muscle mass, muscle power, and a sense of well-being. People with low testosterone feel exhausted, fatigued, and they just um, say they, they have low energy. And, and this has definitely been shown in both men and women. So when the ovaries become more quiescent at the time of menopause, we, we no longer make eggs. And when we make eggs, we make lots of estrogen and progesterone. But we're also decreasing um, our production of testosterone. It doesn't go to zero, but it's variable woman to woman. So um, that combined with the testosterone that comes from our adrenal glands can impact our energy and our musculoskeletal um, health and uh, can vary greatly. The adrenal gland production of the pre-testosterone hormones is known to be extremely variable through the population, and we don't fully understand that. So we've been focusing on some negative aspects of, of menopause, but there are some there are some positive benefits. I mean, you know, there's lack of the whole bleeding thing every month and, and no PMSing. Um, are there some other benefits that women can look forward to as they are, um, you know, awake at two or three in the morning that they can console themselves with? Sure. So some of the, the other things that uh, we think about, some women have headaches that are related to their period, so menstrual migraines can improve uh, dramatically when we get rid of periods. Some women have uh, bad gastrointestinal symptoms that are associated with their periods, bloating. Um, And with runners, you might uh, have a little more propensity towards uh, uh, diarrhea at those Mm -hmm. times, which is... um, not good when you're trying to get through a marathon. So those kind of gastrointestinal effects or um, uh, effects on uh, headaches would improve. Women describe just a a sense of freedom, not having to worry about their contraception. Um, So I would, I would add that into this list. Um, I, I think the other uh, sort of downsides that I hear from women is we sometimes will see mood changes uh, that are exacerbated or worsened prior to that final menstrual period. So women who are prone to um, low mood may have had postpartum depression um, are going to be at risk during this time in their life. Running certainly helps. Uh, as we all know, again, um, running, really those endorphins are uh, incredibly helpful for mood. Um, and some women get through this time when they are at risk for uh, low mood by running more. 
um, we see a decrease in libido. Um, that I have no idea what you're talking a, about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she said sarcastically. Uh -huh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of head shaking going on here. Yeah. Naughty. So what is, what is that about? Uh, testosterone um, tends to fall more gradually through time, unlike the estrogen story that we know seems to plummet. I mentioned testosterone earlier, but that tends to be a, a more gradual uh, change, but it is definitely uh, diminished. Um, that can be associated with uh, painful uh, uh, dryness and irritation in the vaginal area, not only with sexual activity, but even with uh, bike riders, yep. runners, I see. Yep. Uh, our next, our next question is going there. Yep. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the tissues become really thin. Uh, estrogen builds up collagen, builds up uh, skin thickness, and as that decreases, the skin becomes thin. Um, we call friable or uh, fragile. Yeah, the word and, that my and, GYN used was excessive atrophy which is not what yeah. you want to hear from your no, gynecologist. And in, in fact, we try not to use that word because it just, uh, it, in medicine, atrophy is shriveling up, shrinking, um, aging, connotes all those things. And uh, it just isn't a, a very nice term that you want associated uh, That's right. with, your, with your vaginal area. Um so what can we do for that? We actually are doing a study. We finished our enrollment in Seattle, uh, and uh, we had another site in the Midwest where we were trying to look at the effects of um, local estrogen versus uh, moisturizer versus a placebo, and that data will be out, um, we hope, in the next year. We know that estrogen does uh, help the majority of women. But those creams are messy, and women tend not to continue to use them long periods of time. Um, so we're trying to look at treatments that are um, are more user-friendly, that women uh, find uh, easy to do um, and aren't sloppy messy yeah, that, like that the cream. That's what drove me to my GYN, and, and I did get some of that cream, was that on long runs, I began noticing I would come back and there'd be blood, like red blood on my shorts. Yeah, um, chasing. And yeah, yeah it, was, it was, you know, painful and a little disconcerting, and um, I believe uh, my co-host here is now experiencing some of the <laughs> same, <laughs> same thing. I haven't had the blood, but it's the, it's the chafing that was like, oh, that doesn't feel right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So That's raw. Yeah. 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 So, so there uh, are some some over the counter things. So coconut oil uh, oh. has been widely used as a, a natural um, uh, protective layer that uh, some women prefer to those the estrogen or those hormonal therapies. Local estrogen is not associated with any uh, untoward side effects or risks when used at the correct doses. So women with breast cancer can use local estrogen as long as their oncologist would agree to something like that. But um, in general, those hormones are not uh, picked up 
in any uh, significant amount into the bloodstream and would not affect other parts of the body. Okay. Okay. I'm just, I'm just going to go there. So coconut oil, you know, I have a, I put mm-hmm. it in my tea. Um, yep. Ellison sometimes uh, does oils pulling. She's, you know, so, so let's talk about then how exactly are you saying people would use coconut oil? Yeah. So you can use any natural um, plant-based oil. And I tell my patients, you can take it from your kitchen for uh, sexual activity, so you rub it on those areas. Or if you just feel dry and you're headed off for a run, you can try just applying that to the outer area. Sexual activity, you put it on whatever is going to go on inside you. Okay. Right. God, that was that yeah. was very tactful. Thank you. And Allison was doing a little hand gesture with a face move that I was trying not to laugh into the microphone. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> well, well, moving along, uh, I know that many of us continue to suffer hot flashes even years after finishing up menopause. I mean, I'm six years away and mm-hmm. sometimes I'll go for months and months without a single hot flash and then like right now, I go through a couple of weeks where I start having them again, although not as frequently as before. Um, why is that? Right. Yeah, so what's that about? Well, our our ovaries become quieter, but they don't completely turn off is the idea here, that you may be getting small bursts of hormones uh, either from the ovaries or the adrenal glands that are... Um, contributing to hormonal fluctuations. It's not so much the hormone level as the fluctuations that we think bring on the hot flashes. Um, And so that's probably the best explanation. Our stress hormones, cortisol, also will mediate uh, these hormone levels. So changes in serotonin, which is a brain um, chemical, may affect uh, hot flashes. Uh, One of the non-hormonal treatments for hot flashes commonly used now are what are called the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, usually used for depression, but at much lower doses, we can use for hot flashes. So um, antidepressants that affect serotonin. Gabapentin also is a, uh, a medication that can help with hot flashes, and it affects what's called our GABAergic system. And uh, GABA neurons in our brain can modulate our what we call the thermoregulatory center or, or the place in our brain that determines whether we're going to sweat and vasodilate when we think we're too hot or shiver when we think we're too cold. And it's a set point in our brain that's determining all this. Well, you know what I I hear? I hear, uh, yeah, I know that was a lot. I I felt I was a little bit back there in biology class again. Um, but But that what I am hearing from you is that there are a lot of options that women can turn to from their medical provider or just from their their grocery shelf, let's say, for that coconut oil, but um, but that they can alleviate the symptoms or lessen the symptoms, that they sort of don't have to just limp through it. 
don't tough it out. Yeah. Particularly if you're not sleeping, that would be my biggest message to women. Um, yeah, I got and find on... a provider that's knowledgeable and understands hormonal and non-hormonal possibilities, so that you can choose what you want to use for your uh, symptoms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got on a low dose of uh, trazodone, which is an anti-anxiety mm-hmm. medicine, but they mm-hmm. use it off-label for sleep. But now I'm trying yeah. to get off it. I've got a naturopath that's not happy with that. But that, that saved me. I mean, I tried everything for three years, and the trazodone allowed me to sleep. Yeah, the low-dose trazodone can be an excellent sleep uh, aid when other things aren't working. It is not supposed to be addictive. So, uh, you know, your naturopath trying to get you off, I would try and taper it and use it less. And usually people can come off of it um, without getting what we call rebound or worsening sleep. You might try to use um, some of the behavioral uh, um, treatments that I suggested, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, to help if you want to transition off a medication. Good, good. Well, I guess we need to move on to the uh, talk about weight gain that often accompanies Mm. menopause. Um, (laughs) As one of our listeners, Allison, put it on Facebook, the the 10 extra pounds that just appeared. So this seemingly no reason weight gain can be especially dispiriting to mother runners who use weight management as one of the motivations to run. Correct. Yeah. Some of this is aging, but some of it is hormonal. So as our testosterone hormones uh, drop, our muscle mass decreases, but our adipose mass increases. It's Mm -hmm. just a hormonal fact. And some women uh, have uh, much stronger effects from that than others. Um, Certainly we know for all Individuals, as we age, uh, we need to modulate our diets in ways that we really, I think, as Americans, don't have a good grip on. Um, Our portion sizes in our country are massive compared Mm -hmm. to uh, what normal truly is. So I think trying to pay attention to that and just understanding that as athletes, we've been able to... um, eat a lot of those things that we like and love and don't have to worry as much because we burn so many calories. Mm -hmm. But uh, as our bodies change with age, we just have to be a little more mindful Mm -hmm. that we don't metabolize our food in the same way we used to. It's different. Yeah. And that's hormone changes or not. Yeah. 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 Um, So I want to want to end on a question that falls into the, okay, this is bizarro. So what's going on here? Um, What's up with there's the hair on our legs, under our armpits, like grow way more slowly yet, you know, like I could go into a bearded lady contest. I mean, what, what, what the what? (laughs) What's happening there? So, so it's actually the balance of the hormones. And if you look on balance, um, your estrogen has fallen more than your testosterone. So the hair follicles, um, depending on the site in your body, uh, become a little more sensitive to that 
testosterone estrogen balance hmm. um, how to manage this as you look at older women we essentially start to lose uh, the hair in our armpits and our and our genitals it becomes less and less and then we get hair on our chins which is bizarre right <laughs> and, then, and then we lose the hair from our head um, it it does have to do with hormones and what's happening to that aging hair follicle um, how can you combat this um, most women a, a do personal turn waxer to at home. <laughs> waxing uh, exactly although it's it can be uh, painful mm-hmm. Um, depending on how much hair you've got. Uh, waxing is good. Laser therapy is really seems to be expensive the first year you try it, but then once you get things under control, a lot of women can control facial hair growth uh, by maybe one or, or two laser treatments a year. Mm-hmm. And those are, you know, on the order of maybe 150 bucks. That's what, you know, not that many lattes. So some, a number <laughs> of women will do that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh. oh, my goodness. I just hope that everybody else has vision as bad as mine, and then maybe they don't see the hairs. So, <laughs> Or or what I've decided lately is that no one looks at middle-aged women very much. So, uh, you know, who am I kidding? <laughs> so. Well, it's... It yeah it's or they look initially and as a as a fit uh, runner and an athlete uh, they see you from afar they look and then the closer they get <laughs> you find the the faces looking away so <laughs> but I you've you've got to take that as a a plus as a good thing that they've looked at you to begin with because they still look because you look great right physically you really do and then they see the wrinkles on your face it's like whoops what happened so i i love it i think i'm tricking people right yeah that and a good pair of sunglasses i found is solves many exactly. many horrors right yes yeah, yeah. so a good lipstick and sunglasses yeah. yep. hat sunglasses yeah. and you just keep them looking right and on, and on that note that's that's, the, that's what we're going to go out on. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Susan Reed. This was really uh, enlightening and entertaining to talk with you. Very good. And good luck to everybody as they tr- transition through this time in their lives. And there, there are many wonderful aspects to it. So here's to happy running and healthy living. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. Alrighty, well, uh, we are just delighted. What a great guest she was. And I let Allison split out of here. She's got to go walk her dog. So, um, here, but here is Dimity to share what's going on in the Train Like a Mother Club. Rabbit, rabbit, Dimity here in Denver on March 1st. It is um, Rabbit, Rabbit Day. Did you guys play that growing up? I did, but I always failed at it. I just know that it was supposed to be like the first thing you said in the morning. And I think you're supposed to say it before the other person did, but I'm not quite sure what happened if you said it second. And I always said it second because I could never remember. Anyway, that's not what we, we're not here to discuss little jumpy bunnies. We're here to talk about the Train Like a Mother Club Corner. And this week we are headed over to the triathlon group, the Try Like a Mother group. I've got a great post from Laura, who is in um, the Olympic plan. So she says, um, 
I am not good at this, so I apologize in advance. I don't want to toot my own horn, but I don't feel like I could have done either of these feats without this training plan, our coaches, and this community, so I had to share. I hope that's okay. Um, first of all, let me just a little interjection here. Yes, Laura, it's great, and that's why we're here, and that's why we love the Train Like a Mother Club, because we all get to toot our own horns in a way that everybody appreciates because they know how hard it is to do what we're doing, fit in uh, training for a race or taking care of ourselves or moving forward in addition to all the other responsibilities. Okay, back to Laura. Yesterday, I finally completed an entire master's swimming class. I swam the entire 2,000 meters in 50 minutes. Normally, I'm about 150 to 300 meters behind the workout before time is up. It was rough, but worth it. And then today, I completed the long bike ride, 75 minutes, and then off the bike, I ran for 15, for 20 minutes. I was supposed to run for 15, but I went five minutes longer because I wanted to finish the movie I was watching. And I did it all in my padded shorts. I was having a hard time believing that I was going to be able to run in bike shorts, and mentally it was stressing me out, but it wasn't horrible. Yippee, she says. So nice work, Laura. She's um, a lot like Jesse, who, who I talked about last week, who ran 30 minutes or 60 minutes straight without walking. It's just so cool to see you guys um, break barriers, you know, swim for 2,000 meters, which is not an insignificant distance. Um, you know, do a little, oh, 95-minute brick. Nice job, Laura. And um, hope you guys have a great week, no matter what you're doing, whether you're swimming, biking, running, or you know, just hanging out and enjoying the new month of March. See you next week. Bye. All right, everybody. Well, I have a favor to ask of you. We're doing a show. We're recording it next week. Amanda and I are. And it's going to be about getting kids involved in running. So as I often say on this podcast, I like to include a lot of different voices in it. So I want to hear what you have to say about trying to get your kid or kids involved in running. And it could be, you know, that they're four-year-olds doing the the kitty, you know, 100-yard dash, or it could be trying to convince your high schooler to go out for the cross-country team, or is your 12-year-old too young to do a half marathon? I mean, whatever your experience is with your child or children and running, we'd love to hear about it. If you could record a short voice memo on your phone, and by short, I mean 60 to 120 seconds, so one to two minutes, start out, please, with your first name, where you're calling from, and then just kind of give a little verbal snapshot of um, what the situation is in your life. And I need those pretty quick turnaround. I'm hoping to get those by the end of the day on Monday, March 6th. So if you're listening to this podcast right when it comes out, I need them on by Monday afternoon. If you can email those, please, to shopgal at anothermotherrunner.com. That's shopgal, S-H-O-P-G-A-L, that's me, um, at anothermotherrunner.com. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much, and many happy miles to you.